Okay. If you have a Bible with you, please open up to Galatians chapter 4. Or if you have a Bible app with you, open up your Bible app to Galatians 4. Uh, last week I took a break from this series and did what I call a one-of message. Every once in a while I get, you know, inspiration to kind of stick something else in there. And last week was that. And John alluded to it today. I'm glad you remembered it. Found a place to land in your heart pad. But I talked about focus, and I, I kind of had a, a, a specific emphasis on uh, focus in uh, difficult times. And so um, that might be a blessing to you if you weren't here for it. And so today is Pentecost Sunday, and we find ourselves back in Galatians chapter 4. And I think, I think the timing is good. I think it's a, to the, this portion of Galatians is a pretty good fit for Pentecost, and I'll make reference to that at the end. But um, before we jump into the text, just, I, use, I write my sermons on Thursdays, and I usually do the final edits on Fridays. But every once in a while, somewhere along the line, God just kind of pops something into my head, and, we get ready for bed last night, and I'm standing on my side of the bed, and I'm just kind of frozen for a second. My brain is going, and he's like, are you okay? It's like, yeah, yeah, just something extra to add to my sermon. And so some thoughts key to me. He's like, to answer this question for you, why are we doing Galatians? We've been in it for, I think, since February, and um, I kind of enjoy digging into the text, and... Um, and I don't, it doesn't really bother me if it takes us a while to get through it. We're going to have a sermon every Sunday, and it's going to be focused on some portion of Scripture. Why not go through a particular book, right? This is valuable to God's people. But why are we doing, why this book? Why are we doing this? And um, well, this is why. Well, first of all, I really felt like God told me to do it. You know, I, we had finished up the last thing, and I was kind of getting ready for the next thing, and... And I actually speak to God and ask Him, Lord, well, these are your people. I, I will often have this conversation, you know, Lord, these are your people. What do you want me to say to your people? And my heart is to offer you something that's fresh, uh, what I would call fresh bread each week. Nothing quite like fresh bread. So I did it. We're doing Galatians because I really believe God said to. And I got to tell you, um, I didn't realize this prior to digging into it, but as I've dug into the chapters, into the verses, I really believe that Paul's letter to the Galatians is as relevant today as it was the day it was written. It is as relevant to the church today as it was to, to the Galatians. And so to that end, I want you to know, as I go through the text, um, there are some things that are very important to me. I, I want to offer to you a clear understanding of what's happening in the text. I very much so uh, resist cherry-picking verses and taking them out of context. It, it's a personal pet peeve of mine, and so I really try, work hard not to do that. Um, when I do topical series, I try not to do that, and especially when I'm actually speaking chapter and verse out of a biblical text, I... I want to make sure that what I'm sharing to you is in context and it's from the perspective of the author's intent. What was Paul trying to convey to the Galatians when he wrote it? And so that's been kind of my filter uh, as I've looked at this, as I've studied it. Um, I'll spend, 
I spent hours and hours uh, putting this stuff together. Um, and I enjoy it. I'm not, it's not a labor, it's not a complaint. This is, I'm just quite enough of a nerdy pastor that that's fun for me, okay? <laughs> but add, add to it this. Understanding what Paul's communicating in this letter is vitally important to your personal relationship with the Lord. If we can grasp the truth of what he's trying to communicate to his people here, if you can grasp that truth, it will have a significant impact on your relationship with the Lord. Because the challenge is this. The, 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 the ongoing challenge is this. You know, will we have personal relationship with God or will we succumb to what, what is much more common in Christianity around the world today, which is some type of performance-based activity. Do I have to please God, or am I already acceptable to Him? So it's, and Paul's making that argument, and he's making it very, very well. But he's also making it in the context of that culture. So as I try to unpack it for you, I want you to try, as best I can, in, in the short period that we have each other, unpack it, give you understanding from his perspective in that culture so that you can make application to your lives. So that's why we're doing Galatians. All right, so we're up to Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. Let's begin uh, today's uh, take on it from, we'll look at verses 21 to 23 to begin with. And Paul writes, tell, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it was written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine purpose. So throughout this, this letter, the main issue at hand is this. Law versus grace. Will we relate to God on the basis of the Mosaic law or will it be on the basis of grace? Will we relate to God on the basis of religious rules and regulations versus relating to God on the basis of his amazing grace? That's the choice between them. This is the argument Paul's laying out. Paul came preaching a message of grace and afterwards some basically deceived people followed behind him trying to put religious rules and regulations and laws on the Galatians. And, and pretty much the Galatians let them do it. They, even after Paul came preaching the message of grace, he, they, bought into, they bought into what these deceived people were shoveling. <laughs> they let them do it. And so this letter that Paul's writing is he's passionately trying to steer them back to the truth. And it's not an easy task. When, when John Paul Jackson said years ago, the problem with deception is this, you don't know you're deceived. <laughs> and that's the problem with many of, of the Galatians. Franciscan friar and prolific author Richard Ross says this. He says, there are two ways of being a prophet. One is to tell the enslaved that they can be set free. This is the difficult path of Moses. The second is to tell those who think they are free 
that they are in fact enslaved. This is the even more difficult path of Jesus. Jesus came to the Jews who thought they were free. And he came with a message of freedom. And they didn't believe it. And Paul's, Paul walking in the steps of Jesus is finding some of the same challenge. Paul's following Jesus' more difficult path. And i got to be honest with you. Most of my spiritual journey, Nadine and I were talking about this the other day. Everywhere I've gone, I, I preach a message of freedom and of grace and of love. And some people have gotten very upset with me <laughs> for doing that. French Enlightenment writer, historian, and philosopher Voltaire says it this way. It's hard to free fools from the chains they revere. It is really hard to free fools from the chains they revere. Some people are quite accustomed to their chains. Excuse me. I've been astonished at the passion that people have for their chains, or I like to call it their cages. And this is what I've discovered. You know, that even if it's comfortable and if it's familiar, a cage is still a cage, you know? It doesn't matter how many of your friends or family members really, really like it. A cage is still a cage. It doesn't, have much, doesn't matter how much money or fame or power is offered, a cage is still a cage. They can give you a fancy title, even paint your name on the door. And you know what? A cage is still a cage. It can be really big, it can be new, and it can be shiny, and it can still be a cage. You can even decorate it with candles and crosses, or in this case, the Lord Moses. And that cage, that stinking cage, still remains a cage. And these Galatians have made themselves quite at home in this religious cage. So here we have Paul using yet another approach. Like any good preacher, he'll, he'll keep saying the same thing again and again in new and different ways until they get the point. And we see him doing this, we watched him do this throughout the, the four chapters and he's doing it again. He's, he's using yet another approach to make his point to the Galatians. And this time he's using the example of Sarah and Hagar from the Old Testament. Uh, Sarah was the wife of the patriarch Adam, and Hagar was Sarah's slave. And he's using the example of those two women and the sons who were born to them. You, if you want to, you can read a detailed account of that whole storyline if you read Genesis chapter 16 through about 21. But let me identify for you some of the players here being referred to in verses 21 to 23. In verse 21, Paul addresses the cage lovers, the ones who revere their chains. He says, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? So he's speaking to these Galatians who are, who are in bondage to the law. Verse 22, he identifies the, the two women. He said, For it is written, Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, the other by the free woman. The slave woman is Hagar, and the free woman is Abraham's wife, Sarah. And in verse 23, he identifies that there's two sons. He says his, his son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman 
was born as the result of a divine promise. So, for those of you who are familiar with the story, Ishmael is the son who was born of the slave woman Hagar, the son born according to the flesh, and Isaac is the son born to the free woman, Sarah, the son born as a result of a divine promise. So let me give you some of the, the backstory. I'm just going to take you, I'm just going to touch on a few different scripture verses, just highlighting significant points of the story of uh, Abraham and Sarah, Hagar, and their two sons. Let me just touch on this a little bit. So in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. Abraham is at this point 75 years old, and his wife Sarah is 65 years old. And God makes an amazing promise to Abraham. In Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, it says, The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Wow, tremendous promise. You imagine if God said that to you, right? Holy cow, I would be just utterly blown away. Amazing promise from God to Abraham. Now, at this time, Abraham and Sarah are childless. And they heard this promise from God and rightly understood this divine promise to mean that they would have children. And that, you know, that they would have their own children. But the problem is, the fulfillment of this promise took a whole lot longer than either of them have expected. Anybody here still holding on to a promise God made to them? Right? His ways are not our ways. You know? I can tell you, if his ways were Tom's ways, things would happen more quickly than they do. But he's, you know, we have a God who lives outside of time. Oh. So, it's taken a while, and Abraham's frustrated. So you move forward to Genesis 15, and Abraham expresses this concern to God, verses 2 to 6. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? And, and Abraham said, You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Basically, Abraham's talking to God, and he's saying, hey, what's up? You know, you this was my idea, this was your idea, you made this promise to me. And here we are, all this time later, and by the way, I'm an old man. You know, what's up? You know, don't you see what's going to happen? You promised me, and yet this, this servant of mine is going to wind up being my heir. He's concerned he's going to die soon, and what's going to happen to his estate? And God responded to him. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. But a son who is of your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. God is basically doubling down. Yep, that's what I told you. And I know it's been long. You're waiting longer than you want it to be. But this is exactly what it's going to be. You didn't misunderstand me. You didn't misinterpret what I said to me. Yes, you're going to have 
a son of your own flesh and blood, old man. And the scripture tells us that Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. You can preach a whole message on that. Clearly, the promise is indeed a son, a child of their own, a son who is, who is your own flesh and blood, not an adopted son, right? Not a spiritual son, a physical, natural-born, well, really supernaturally-born son. So 10 years later, right, you would think after that, oh, man, it's going to happen right now, right? I had that promise a long time ago. God himself gives me even more detail on this promise. It's going to happen tomorrow. Well, maybe next month. Maybe next month. <laughs> Ten years later. By Genesis 16, Sarah is tired of waiting. And in her frustration, she decides to become God's little helper. You ever been God's little helper? You're waiting on God to do something for you and you think, well, maybe I can just do this for that. Move the ball along. Never works out well. Being God's little helper, not a really good idea. Certainly not a good idea here. Because at least to her, she was guessing God couldn't do this on her own. So the almighty God of the universe, the omnipotent one, the all-powerful one, needs Sarah's help. So in Genesis 16, verses 1 and 2, it tells us this. Now, Sarah, Abraham's wife, had bore him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps, perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. So what do we have here? Sarah is desperate, and Abraham's dumb as rocks is basically what's going on. Right? Never would happen in our house, right? There'd have been nose Hagar in the Zoraki house. And so this leads to the birth of Ishmael, the son of the slave woman Hagar, the son born of the flesh, the son born naturally. Now make no mistake, make no mistake in this, in this story or in your story, God is absolutely faithful to his promises, even when they take longer than we expect or than we like them to. And so the story continues, and Genesis 17 tells us that God appeared to Abraham when he was 99 years old. And God told Abraham that his 89-year-old wife would bear him a son. Ridiculous, right? Ridiculous! Right up God's wheelhouse. The ridiculous seems to be, you know, his thing. Genesis 17, 16. God says to Abraham, I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. It's like God doubled down and we have all this time has gone by later. Boom, he's doubling down again. Abraham's response in verse 17. He's been holding on to this promise for a long time now. Abraham fell face down and laughed and said, to he, God spoke to him. You realize almighty God spoke to Abraham and Abraham's response was to fall down and laugh. And it wasn't like, oh, the Holy Spirit hit him and he was falling down laughing. He's thinking, this is ridiculous what I'm hearing. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? In Genesis 18, 
Abraham and Sarah are visited by the Trinity. Verse 10, the first half of verse 10 says, Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Right? You see a progression here? As time has gone on, God has gotten more and more specific. He told them what? He told them who? Now he's telling them when. Next year this time. The second half of verse 10 verse through verse 12 is Sarah's response. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? So Sarah's response was much like Abraham's a chapter earlier. She laughed at the outrageousness of God's promise. Then God spoke again in verse 13 and 14. Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. I mean, it's emphatic. So here we see the time frame was added to the promise, next year. And that's exactly what God did. Guys, that's exactly what he did. Genesis 21, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the, same, the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore to him. Wow. His ways are not our ways. But he is always faithful to his promise. He's always faithful to his promises. None of this worked out the way Abraham or Sarah thought it would. So much so, they laughed at God. They heard the audible voice of God. God visited them made an outrageous promise to them, and then backed it up. His ways are not our ways, but he's always faithful to his promise. So here we have Isaac. He's the son born of the free woman, Sarah, born as the result of a divine promise. So that takes us back. That's the context. This is, this is the example that Paul's using as he communicates to the Galatians. He's, using, he's getting one more spin, one more take, on the argument of grace versus law. He's, he's speaking to them with a cultural uh, context that they would understand. The story of Abraham and his two sons born through Abraham, born through Sarah and, and Hagar. Verses 24 to 27. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. So Paul's taking the story and now he's telling them metaphorically or figuratively what it means. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands from Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud. You who never, 
who were never in labor because more are the children of the desolate women than of her who has a husband. So Paul is using the story of Abraham's sons metaphorically to represent two different covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant. Hagar, the slave woman, represents the law, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. You read about that in Exodus chapters 19 and 20. While Sarah, the free woman, represents grace and the new Jerusalem from above. And then to make his point, he basically describes Sarah to the Galatians by quoting Isaiah 51, 54, verse 1. Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud. You who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. The story of Abraham goes on to tell us that there was conflict between the two women. Once Isaac was born, Sarah wanted Hagar and her son Ishmael out of the picture. She felt threatened by her, didn't want her in the house. I got my own son. He's going to be the heir. Let's get rid of these guys. You know, it, it was a, it was my idea then, but it was a bad idea. Things seem so much better now that God's fulfilled the promise. She felt threatened by the presence of the slave woman and her son. And Paul makes reference to this, to, to this contention and this conflict between uh, these two women and their sons in verses. In our final verses for today, verses twenty-eight to thirty-one. Verse 28, now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. Paul's explaining that the Galatians are not born of the slave woman. They're not born of the old covenant. They're not born of the covenant of Moses. They're not born of the Ten Commandments that were given on Sinai. They're not born of the slave woman. They're not born naturally in the flesh. Instead, that they're born of the free woman, of the new covenant. They were born of the promises of God fulfilled in Christ Jesus. They're not born naturally of the flesh, but supernaturally of the Holy Spirit. And guys, so are we. <laughs> so are we. We're born of the new covenant. We're born in freedom. Verse 29. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the same now. Oh, I tell you what, it is the same now. <laughs> Paul's saying it's the same, it, that it was the same then. And what did he mean? The new covenant come, supernaturally. The word became flesh, dwelt among us. Jesus came and made a new covenant, promised us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came. There's a new covenant. And you Galatians are the fruit of that new covenant because I came preaching a message of grace through Jesus Christ. But you're being persecuted by the old covenant. You're being persecuted. You're, you're, you're being harassed by those who are still under the old covenant. Just like there was contention between Sarah and Hagar and their sons, so is their contention. Between the old covenant and the new covenant in Paul's day. And just as it is in our day. So these verses describe the current spiritual atmosphere in Galatia 
And they also accurately describe, in my humble opinion, the current state of Christianity around the world, across all denominations, denominational lines. We are Isaac, and we get attacked by Ishmael. We are Isaac, and all too many of us live as if we were Ishmael. We're born free. And that some of us live as slaves to religion. Those, and those who dare to live by grace, who proclaim a message of grace, who fully embrace the power of the Holy Spirit, we're persecuted. I have been many places, some of you too. We're harassed and mocked and insulted, ridiculed, harshly rejected. Because we had the audacity to believe the word of God and embrace the Holy Spirit. And who were rejected by the world? No. By the church. Guys, it, it ought not be. It ought not be. Final verses, verses 30 and 31. But what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance of the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. When Paul says, get rid, when Paul says here, get rid of the slave woman, what is he saying? Is he saying, hey, the people who disagree with you in your church, you should get rid of those people. You should throw them out of your church. Because if they don't believe in grace and they don't embrace the gifts of the Spirit, you've got to get rid of them. Is that what he's saying? That's absolutely not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. This, the whole language here is metaphorical. And when he, when he says get rid of the slave woman, he's saying get rid of the old covenant. Get rid of the law. Get rid of the old ways of doing things. God's doing a new thing. He's saying get rid of the law and embrace grace. Get rid of the natural and embrace the supernatural. He means that we're not slaves. We're not born of slavery. We were born in freedom. And we have full freedom in Christ Jesus. So today is Pentecost Sunday. Like I said, many refer to it as the birthday of the church. That time when the Holy Spirit was poured out and recorded in Acts chapter 2. I was looking at Acts chapter 2 the other day. It really wasn't part of sermon preparation, but just my own personal enjoyment. Sometimes I get these ideas, they pop on my head, and I have to investigate and see if they bear out. You know, it says on that day, there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. There wasn't a wind. There was, nothing says that there was an actual wind, but there was the sound of a wind. And so I was intrigued by sound. So I did some research on that, that word sound. You know, it, could, it, could, it means this. Looked in a few different places, but it could actually mean this. It can mean a roar, or the roar of a wave. You guys are all, hey, we're surrounded by water. We all live at a beach. You ever been out on a particularly stormy day, and you hear the roar of the waves? Right? It can be deafening. There, there was a loud sound. I'm thinking God, God's okay with loud sometimes. Right? And maybe... Quietness. 
being, oh, I don't know, appropriate. <laughs> Maybe it means less to God than it does to us. There was a roar on that day. Maybe there ought to be something in us that bubbles up and roars out of us. I remember years and years ago, probably 30-odd years ago, I was at a vineyard conference, my first vineyard conference. We were in Ashland, Ohio. And I'm just being blown away. First time I've ever experienced any vineyard stuff, and it is just nailing me. And we're at one particular session, I'm listening to this guy, Don Williams. Just brilliant man, incredibly brilliant man. And I'm pretty sure he was speaking about evangelism. And he looked every bit of the absent-minded professor up there. He had pants that were too big on him and a shirt that was wrinkled. And I think one cuff was rolled up and one tail of his shirt was tucked in, the other was out. It looked like none of the clothes he was wearing had ever seen an iron and his hair didn't know what a comb was. This is what he looked like up there. And so he first got up, I'm like, geez, what is this guy? And then he just spoke with power. And at, at all these venue conferences, what they did at the end, there was a ministry time. Everybody stand up. Come Holy Spirit. They prayed. And so I'm standing there. And boy, I can feel the Spirit of God bubbling up inside of me. That's what it felt like. And I felt like this, this roar, this shout wanted to come out of me. But I'm terrified. I'm surrounded by all those people. And this is what I'm thinking. If I let this sound out, they're all going to think I have a demon. Oh, I don't want them to think I have a demon. That's what I was thinking. And but the presence of God was so intense, the power of God was on me was so strong, I couldn't contain it. And after a little while, oh, this shout comes out of me. And the next thing I know, there are like 30 people around me laying hands on me. On me. I'm thinking, oh, they do think I have a demon. You know? <laughs> and none of them thought that. They just prayed for me. It was, the, it was the presence of God. It was the Spirit of God moving on me and in me and through me and out of me in just a mighty and a powerful way. I think sometimes when the Spirit of God comes on us, that, it, that there is a sense of it exploding from us. Isn't that awesome? I think there was something wildly dramatic that happened on the day of Pentecost. And as, and as people of Pentecost, I think maybe we need to have a little bit more of our capacity for wildness, you know? At least I try to be okay with it. So that's why I tell you, when it comes to church, I'm okay with messy. If it's God, man, I've so learned a lesson that his ways are not my ways. His ways are higher than my ways, so I'm going to leave space for it. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I'll, I'll deal with my wrongness. You know? I'll deal with humbling. But I think all too often, in North American churches anyway, you know, we invite the Holy Spirit into our churches, and then we wrap them up with duct tape and stick them in the corner of the room and say, you're welcome, just don't make a mess of my service. You know? We have to get out at this time. <laughs> I was interviewed for a church before we came here, and uh, I was doing a, a video interview, and there's one, one woman, she says, hey, I listen to some of your sermons online. I think it's somewhere in Wisconsin, a, a town of like 500 people or something. So I listened to some of your sermons. She said, they're pretty good, but they're too long. She said, they're way too long. She said, my roast is going to burn. <laughs> so I'm thinking pretty much her system on a Sunday morning. She put the roast in the oven, walked over to the church. 
when the service was over, she got back home and the roast was done. She said, you're going to have to get them down in like 20 minutes. <laughs> they never hired me. <laughs> No, there was a, there was another church that they didn't, they didn't have a whole lot of money, so but they had some farmers, so they offered us uh, half a cow, and I said I was going to hold out for two pigs and a chicken. You know? so, <laughs> <laughs> so funny. So as we close today, it is Pentecost, and we are we are sons and daughters of freedom. We're, we're not sons and daughters of slavery. Let's stand. Let's pray. John, why don't you come up for a final song? And let's, let's embrace our birthright. Let's embrace the promises of God. As John leads us in a final song, if you need prayer for anything, please come forward, and we'll be happy to pray for you. But Lord, we acknowledge today, we come before you as your sons and your daughters, and we acknowledge that we're not born naturally of the flesh. We are born supernaturally of the Spirit. That we too are children of the promise. And Lord, we know that you're faithful to your promises. And we ask this morning that you would be faithful to us. To every promise that you've spoken to each and every heart here. Lord, we ask you to be faithful to the promises you've made to us. Do it, Lord. I pray that you would bring everything to completion, everything to fulfillment, even if it takes longer than we'd like it to, even if it seems ridiculous, oh God. Come and do the ridiculous. Come and do the amazing. Come and do the foolish. Come and do God-sized things. Come and do the things that only you can do. Do it, Lord. So, Lord, we ask you for a fresh and new outpouring of your Spirit. Pour it out. And Lord, keep pouring until we overflow with your spirit, until this church is filled with the life of your spirit. And Lord, until you flood the streets of Prince Edward Island with your spirit. We, Lord, we ask. We ask for you. We ask for your presence. We ask for your gifts. We ask for your power. We ask for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.